Well done on sticking with us through this whole series. We are in the second last installment in our study of Mark and we have gone through most of the life of Jesus. We really get to the climax of the story and many of us are familiar with what is to take place which is the uh, arrest and then the trial and um, uh, the, 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 the crucifixion of Jesus and then the subsequent resurrection. Uh, these passages are familiar but I pray that you will see uh, some new details or they will have a fresh revelation or, or just a fresh appreciation of all that Jesus has done. Now because there's so much text for us to cover in the next couple of sessions, can I ask that you have your Bible ready? In fact, it'd be great if you can pause and read through Mark chapter 14, which is what we are going to cover today. There's just simply too much text for me to be reading through and then explaining it. I will provide the explanations, but be ready to pause, be ready to read again if you need to refresh yourself on what uh, Mark wrote about. And we're going to start right at the beginning of the chapter uh, which says now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away this is setting the scene and so far, uh, what we have just read is that Jesus had this triumphal entry into uh, Jerusalem as a king. He went to the temple and, and he had uh, some temple controversies, as, as it is called, and, and he debated and he basically shut down uh, the religious leaders. And then he begins to teach as well about what is to happen. And in Mark chapter 14, we uh, now have uh, a change of scene and, and Mark... Uh, talks about it changes it by referencing a couple of key festivals um, uh, that the Israelites celebrate the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread I believe that this is very deliberate that Mark sets the tone using these two festivals because of of what Jesus represents uh, in these two different feasts and sometimes people do confuse it because the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread does have a big crossover uh, but they actually represent different things. The Passover is probably the one that we are familiar with. It is the one of a feast that, that, that celebrates and, uh, and marks how God brought a final plague to Egypt that initiated the Exodus back in the Old Testament. The Passover was the event where the Israelites painted the doorposts with a lamb's blood and so that when God sent the angel of death to come, the angel will pass over these doors, these households, and they were safe inside these households. It shows how the lamb was sacrificed in order uh, to ensure that those inside of the house does not um, face the judgment of the angel of death. And in that way, Jesus is referred to as the Passover lamb. He is uh, the, the substitute for us. We are meant to be facing judgment, but Jesus takes the judgment upon himself through his death and therefore rescues us from judgment. And so we have the Passover, the sacrifice of Jesus, but then we also see that from the Passover, the Israelites are meant to celebrate the festival of unleavened bread, which is celebrated over seven days. And uh, this is found in Deuteronomy 16 verse 3. It says, do not eat with bread, uh, do not eat it with bread made with yeast, but for seven days eat unleavened bread, the bread of affliction, because you left Egypt in haste. So that all the days of your life, you remember the time of your departure 
from Egypt. So the Passover is one meal, but the festival of unleavened bread goes on for the rest of the week. How this relates to the Exodus is that God told the Israelites that the final plague was to come and they needed to prepare themselves for the Exodus. And in the preparation of this Exodus, they do not have the time to allow their bread uh, to prove with the yeast as they normally would to get the normal fluffy bread. But they were to make this unleavened bread, which is also known as matzah. And over time, this came to symbolize the rush out of Egypt. And also remember that Jesus uses the imagery of yeast, we talked about this a few weeks ago, uh, to, to, to describe the teaching of the Pharisees and Herod. You see, in the Bible, yeast represents this perverse, worldly mindsets that easily permeates all of our lives. A little bit of yeast can go a long way. And so in that way, yeast represents sin, a life that is contrary to God's ways. And so the Israelites were commanded during these seven days to eat this unleavened bread. Uh, but we will read as well, if you read through the Old Testament and, and, and the Mosaic law, you will read read about how not just are they meant to be eating this unleavened bread, but they were meant to cleanse their whole house of yeast, which is impossible because yeast are these tiny little specks that are light and they float and they get everywhere. If you are used to baking your own bread, you will naturally have yeast in many different places and you are meant to actually, uh, uh, during this festival of unleavened bread, to get rid of all the yeast. A part of the celebration that the Israelites uh, then uh, created was that they would actually hide bread around their house during um, the, the start of the festival of unleavened bread for um, kids to go around and find this bread and they would chuck this bread out as a symbol of getting rid of yeast, getting rid of sin. What I want to show to you uh, in, in, in this introduction to chapter 14 is that Mark talks about the Passover, how Jesus releases us from slavery to sin. But now we have this week long and seven, the number seven is, a, is the number of completion in the Bible. We have this picture of being free from sin, but needing to bring that freedom into its fullness, living a life without sin. This is what Jesus accomplishes for us because he sets us free from sin and then he enables us to live without sin. This is the picture of the Messiah. And quite often as Christians, we remember that Jesus sets us free from sin, but then we don't go on to the next seven days to the completion of what God is trying to do in our lives. Uh, for the Israelites, there's this saying that I often quote myself because I find it so profound. It says, God took Israel out of Egypt, but then Israel needed to get Egypt out of them. They needed to get this slave mindset. They needed to get rid of the old ways of life out of them in order to enter the prom promised land. For the Israelites, the sad thing is that they never got rid of Egypt within them. And so the whole generation actually did not enter the promised land. They did not have faith in God. They did not walk according to his ways and they perished in the wilderness. I pray that we see the fullness of what Jesus does, not just set us free from sin, but then allows us, helps us, enables us, graces us to live a life without sin. That is what we are meant to be seeing. 
And so this is uh, what Jesus is about to accomplish in a couple of days at the start of chapter 14. We then go on. We're not going to read the passage, as I mentioned. Uh, but, but Jesus is at uh, this, this, this dinner that was put on for him. And um, uh, many of the Gospels do include this story. And so we can actually get different facts from different uh, parts of the four Gospels to paint a fuller picture. But I'm just going to focus solely on what Mark says. And while Jesus was at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman, an unnamed woman, comes to him with an alabaster jar which she breaks and pours on Jesus's head uh, in, in the midst of doing this the people around they go wow that is such a waste we could have sold that for a year's wages and given it to the poor to which Jesus says leave her alone why are you bothering this woman she has done a beautiful thing to prepare me for burial and it goes on to promise that whenever the gospels preach what she has done will be told in memory and therefore is recorded in the gospels and from that point on, Judas goes to the chief priest to betray Jesus. A lot's happening in this first section. What I want to point out uh, and explain to us is a few different details. See, this unnamed woman comes and pours expensive perfume on Jesus on his head. This is actually not an uncommon practice. The guest of honor is often anointed uh, by the host or, or by uh, the people attending this dinner, and Jesus is an important person. So he gets anointed. The problem, I guess, that people had was the extravagance of this gift. She took an alabaster jar, and an alabaster is actually uh, just kind of a kind of rock that is translucent, is really pretty, uh, is expensive, and it, uh, is, is created to hold really expensive perfume. In fact, uh, uh, in order to seal the perfume in it, it is sealed. And therefore, when we read that she broke the alabaster jar, it's probably because this jar perfume is meant to be kept for extremely um, uh, unique um, uh, very special occasions uh, for example this woman's marriage uh, uh, her wedding day uh, maybe she would break this jar open and, and and use that perfume because it is a very special occasion she chooses to break open this bottle this jar uh, and so this jar can never be used again the perfume must now be used in its entirety and she pours it on Jesus. And Jesus takes this as his anointing, his preparation for death. This woman did an amazingly beautiful act of worship. She pours out what would probably have been her most treasured possession. And she brought all of it, not just a little bit of it, but all of it and pours it on Jesus. This is a picture of worship that we need to hold in mind. Jesus uh, then responds to those who are saying, what a waste. This money could have been used better to help the poor out. Now, Jesus doesn't say don't help the poor. In fact, time and time again, he shows us that we need uh, to live these lives of, of charity, of meeting other people's needs. That is what the kingdom is all about, serving other people. But he puts service as secondary to worship of him. For many of us as Christians, we need to evaluate whether our acts of service comes after we have given everything to Jesus. 
This is really important. Worship is not just a one-off moment, uh, just a little bit, okay, thank you, Jesus, I love you, now I'm going to serve because that's what I'm supposed to do. No, no, worship is actually meant to be about giving all of ourselves, a representation of all of ourselves at Jesus' feet. And only after we have worshipped Him with everything, then we go on and live our acts of service. We, we cannot do the acts of service without worshipping Jesus first. We cannot do things. We cannot live out our call if it is not proceeding from a heart of worship. And this is where I think there is a big issue for many people in our Western context because we think that generally we are good people. We focus in on the acts that we do, our behaviors, how we live our lives, when really of greater importance. Not to say that we forget this, this is highly important, but remember it, it proceeds from our heart of worship. How are you worshiping God? How are you giving God a representation of all of yourself? How do you sing songs of worship to God? How do you manage your finances in the light of what God does? How do you devote yourself to things um, like reading your Bible and prayer in ways that allow you to get closer to God? Without those things, we are getting things out of order and things are bound to get wrong. In fact, it is indicative that Judas Iscariot uh, initiates his betrayal after this teaching. He never worshipped Jesus as the Messiah and as the Lord of his life. And, and, and he goes on, therefore, and has um, this broken sense of what life is all about. And... Um, and goes on to make the gravest mistake of his life. That is a really, really sad thing. We move on and we now find ourselves at the Last Supper, as it is often called. And Jesus has this Passover meal with his disciples, uh, which they go and prepare. And, and I just want to point out a couple of things. You can read through this by yourself. But one of the uh, pictures of this Last Supper that's always so beautiful to me is how... Mark painstakingly describes the moment that Jesus prophesies his betrayal. To his inner circle of the twelve, he says, I am about to be betrayed. Each disciple then asks, is it I? Is it I? Is it I? This means that Judas also, even though he has already initiated, maybe there's this wrestle that is still going on inside of him. And he asks as well, is it I? And, and yet the meal continues. Yet the way that Jesus shows who's about to betray him is to break bread and to share with Judas. Communion isn't broken with Judas. Communion isn't broken with those that betray Jesus. Jesus continues to offer communion to each and every one of us. When we take of communion, we are remembering that this is not because of me, but this is all because Jesus is inviting me into this relationship and this friendship. It is a moment for me to evaluate, am I truly wanting to have relationship with Jesus? If your answer is yes, fantastic. Take off the bread, take off the wine, and have communion with Jesus. This is an amazing picture of grace. 
And the meal continues in verses 27 to 31, where Jesus then prophesies, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I've risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. At this, Peter declares, even if all fall away, I will not. And Jesus then goes on to say that, Peter, you will disown me three times tonight. It is easy in a safe, comfortable moment to think that I will never betray Jesus. I will always follow him. But Jesus understands our humanity. Remember, he's had communion. As much as Judas is going to betray him and and not have this full communion with Jesus, Peter, in his own way, is also going to disown Jesus. We might not be to the extent of Judas where we are going to completely betray Jesus to death, but maybe we are sometimes more like Peter, where there are moments and situations, uncomfortable situations, where we don't really take Jesus as the center of our lives. Uh, we, we choose to protect ourselves. We choose to, uh, uh, to, to, to have protection and comfort for ourselves rather than acknowledge and live out what it means to be a full-fledged follower of Jesus. But yet, Jesus still has communion with each and every one of us. Remember that this is Peter's recollection of events, uh, and and Mark is the one that records it. Um, And so he doesn't shy away to let us know that he, he, in this moment, was like, I would never betray you, Jesus. But then he also records and goes on to show that he actually does. This is hopefully a sign of grace uh, that we can take. That yes, we might have times, moments of weakness that we fall away from Jesus, but, but we can also continue to come back into communion with Jesus as well. We're going to have to continue and hurry through. In verses 32 to 41, Jesus uh, takes his disciples to Gethsemane. And he goes on to pray. And in particular, it says in verse 33 that he takes Peter, James, and John, the three closest to him. And Jesus is actually in a very difficult position. He is deeply distressed and troubled, as the Bible says. And and he is so heavy with the sorrow that he asks for help. I think that's a very important thing that Jesus also asked for social support. He, he gets the three closest to him to come even closer with him into this moment of, of destitute and this moment of sorrow. He doesn't take all 12, which shows us that there are some moments where we don't need to tell everyone and, and get everyone along the way. But who are your three, maybe? that you can bring along in your deepest, darkest moments of sorrow uh, um, uh, to bring support and encouragement and help along your journey. And so Jesus goes on and he begins to pray. He comes back, he finds his disciples sleeping and and he says to them uh, in verse 37, Are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And then he goes away and prays. And two more times he does this and the disciples fall asleep. Now, I've always found this quite interesting because... Uh, I'm like, come on, disciples, you know that Jesus needs their support. But here you are sleeping. 
And uh, at the same time as I was looking at this, maybe it's not very fair because they've just had this Passover meal, which is this big celebration. This is probably in the middle of the night. It has been a long day. It is tiring. And, and Jesus is the one that, and that, that, that fully understands what the next day holds, but the disciples don't. So why does he keep telling them, wake up and, and pray? I think that there's a symbolic um, uh, a picture for us that, that Jesus is fully awake uh, to what needs to happen. Uh, he's fully awake to the plans of God. He understands the burden. He understands what is going to cost him. And so there is this moment where he is wrestling with his flesh and he is trying to teach and model to the disciples that in our lives we will have these big trials and big temptations and big moments that we are going to need to fight against our flesh. Our spirit might be willing, but our flesh is weak. And the way to do this is to pray. We need to learn how to pray. We need to come back to communion with God, to speak with Him, to, to hear His voice, to hear His instruction and teaching in order to face the issues, the temptations, the trials that we are about to face in our lives. How are you going in your prayer life? I know that this is a theme that we have spoken about on a few occasions over the series, but I think it's very important that we realize how powerful and and, and and effective prayer is in helping us face the issues of our life. Well, we go on again into verse 43 to 52. I understand we're going quickly. You can pause, you can reflect on, on, on parts of this message as we go along because there is a lot to take in. Uh, but anyway, the, the Jesus pray, uh, praying is done and he sees the crowd coming and Judas comes and kisses him and betrays him. Now, why did Judas have to do this? It's because um, uh, the, the religious leaders knew that if they arrested Jesus while he is at the temple, um, the crowds are more likely to go, what is going on? Give us the details. Why are you taking this man away? He is a great rabbi. He's a great teacher. They wanted to catch Jesus while he is alone. While he is alone. So that they can fabricate the story that they are going to tell the crowd. So that the crowd would then listen to them and forget about who, uh, who Jesus is or who they believe Jesus to be. They, they want to control the show, so to speak, uh, control the, uh, what the crowd's perception of Jesus is. And so Judas betrays him um, and, and Jesus goes along with them. He is not leading a rebellion. He gives himself over to them because he knows that this is God's will and this is what is going to happen. It says, then everyone deserted and fled in verse 50. And it goes on to show that Jesus prophesied correctly about his disciples, as sad as that is, uh, but they leave him. And, and there's this really interesting detail in verse 51 and 52 about a young man, a young man who was uh, wearing a linen garment. And when they seize, uh, uh, when they tried to seize him, when the crowd tries to seize him, he flees away. He leaves his garment behind and says, like, what is this all about? Well, more than likely, this is actually Mark himself talking about how he was following Jesus. And, um, and he uh, inserts himself into the story as is his prerogative. And this is kind of a beautiful little thing about our Bible that is written by human people, by humans, by people who live real lives. And Mark, so when he recognizes this part of the story, he goes, well, I'm going to record and says there was this young man who was there. 
I was there. Um, I think that's a beautiful thing about our Bible that it is uh, real records, real stories, real people, uh, something that we can relate to uh, as we read it. We are going to move on to verse 53 to 65, and this is Jesus' trial before the Sanhedrin, which is the ruling uh, council uh, of the, uh, the Jewish people. And they begin to try to get different testimonies of Jesus so that they can uh, uh, put forward the death penalty. But the, all these people, they couldn't corroborate their stories. It was a sham. It was just this most ridiculous, unfair trial that Jesus would die and the only way that is possible for him to uh, to uh, be tried is for him to have an unfair trial for him to be convic convicted it needed to be an unfair trial uh, look at this irony look at uh, this this story it is so it is it's crazy what Jesus had to go through in order to bring salvation to us. And they only begin to have anything to hang on him when he admits, confesses that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, basically. And then because they don't believe that, they call it blasphemy because it is true. It is not actually blasphemy. Again, the whole unfair trial picture. Uh, but they finally find something to hang on him. They don't need to tell other people that he's a, uh, what Jesus actually said or did in this trial. All they have to tell the crowds is, this guy blasphemed against God. He deserves death according to the law, which is what they did. And we reach the final portion of this chapter in verses 66 to 72. And this is... Uh, a really sad little picture. Uh, we, we find Peter in the courtyard of, um, of the council. And basically this is where he denies Jesus three times. The betrayal is complete. Jesus is left all alone. The bravest even, Peter, has left Jesus. The burden of Jesus' call is not to be shared with anyone else. Jesus had to suffer and die alone so we can be redeemed. This is what our Savior went through for us. And this is a bit of a sorrowful ending to uh, this week's passage. You know what's going to happen in next week, uh, more than likely. Uh, but, but I think this is still a good place for us to stop and just to pause and to consider all that Jesus has done for us. Remember, I started talking about the Passover and the, unleavened, and the festival of unleavened bread at the start. Remember, Jesus is in this portion about to purchase our freedom from sin. And he's also purchasing a life, a complete, a whole life without sin so that we can grab a hold of the promises of God. How are you responding to this? Are you responding with full worship? Are you responding with all of your life? Are you able to be extravagant about your worship for Jesus after all he has done? These are great questions for you to consider. You can bring this up in your lift groups and have a discussion in this coming week. Thanks everyone.